Okay, as you guys grab your seats, uh, would you please open back up to or turn on to Genesis chapter 21, where we will be this morning, as you perhaps have gathered um, from Eli's reading. I asked, uh, I asked Eli Payne to read this morning because we were... Uh, we were chatting before. Um, some of you may know Eli. Many of you may not know Eli, but, uh, but Eli is a great friend of ours and um, a guy who uh, is from the area with the school here and, um, and was a part of uh, a lot that the Lord was doing through Christ the King before we, before we launched. Uh, he actually left before our first official service. He moved up to Athens um, to go to that school up north. Uh, and um, yeah, so and uh, anyway, he's home for uh, for the break for just a couple of days, and is here this morning. And he walked in. He said, "Man, what's with all the what's with all the balloons?" <laughs> like, I said, "Well, it's uh, it's our it's our birthday, right today." And so uh, he was like, "Oh man, like awesome! I get to experience it, having never never done it before." So you're, you're two years late, Eli, but here you are, man. Right? We're, we're so glad that you're here, dude. So thanks for reading for us. Um, Friendship, friendship with, with, among, with and among God's people, it's, it's really um, a gift from the Lord. So, hey, uh, we're in Genesis chapter 21. This morning we are talking about um, the magnification of the goodness of God from verses 1 through 7. Magnifying the goodness of God. Now, we've been on a bit of a, a break. Uh, from our time in this book, right? Um, I mean, we've um, had the season of Advent, which we observed what a sweet time uh, for God's people to, to gather together and um, to consider all of the implication of the, the incarnation of Christ and the anticipation that his people now possess in light of the promise that he is to return. Um, and so that, that was a sweet time for us. Last week, um, we, we take the um, kind of the last week of the year, and then sometime around August, we typically take a one-week break to talk about mission and, and vision and values for the church, um, where we have been and where we are going. It's a time to reorient um, ourselves, uh, moving us all the same direction. That was a great time last week. Before Advent, we finished with chapter 21 of the book of Genesis. Um, and so naturally, this morning, we find ourselves, given that we often give ourselves to um, sequential exposition, that is, we take books of the Bible uh, 99% of the time, and we walk through them, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. Um, we find ourselves back this morning. And so I do need to do um, just a bit of work in order to um, to reacquaint us with this series, right? Because we've been away for a, a bit of time. And so um, if, you're, if you're new, if you have zero familiarity with the book of Genesis, if you've forgotten um, what we've been talking about for the past six months, no sweat, okay? No sweat. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to catch us up here over the course of just a few minutes. What do we need to know? Well, through this book, we are and have been tracing um, this account, this narrative of the beginning of the world. Right, the beginning of, of the world, humanity, and sin. In it, we find the answer to the question, why are things as they are? Right, why is the world broken, and why are we broken? These are questions that we've been discussing from these 20 chapters of this book over the past few months. And the answer is really quite simple. I gave you both the questions, and now, very quickly, I'm going to give you the answer. And the answer is this. Rebellion. Right? Rebellion is why things are the way that they are. Rebellion is why the world is as it is. Rebellion is why we are as we are, why we feel this gamut of human emotion, right? Of, 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 uh, of fear and shame. It's why we experience things like disunity, broken relationships and broken fellowships. Rebellion is, is why we find ourselves in the position that we do. Rebellion from God's perfect design and intent for his creation. Right? Man and woman, their enjoyment of God and their enjoyment of one another and their management of the garden and all of its contents. Readers are, are introduced to God. As creator, right? as, as judge and rescuer, we have observed on countless occasions man's descent 
into sin. Perhaps you, you remember the illustration that we oftentimes use to illustrate this, right? It's, it's um, as though we are on an, on an upward swing, an upward trajectory. Things seem to be going well. This is typically the way that we observe it happening within God's word. At some point, in some season, there's an upward trajectory. Men and women are calling on the name of the Lord. They are worshiping and enjoying him. We've experienced this oftentimes in our own in our own personal relationships with him, only then to encounter and experience a downward spiral of sin. Right? Like you can trace it in your own life. I don't have to sit up here and like belabor the point. I don't have to I don't have to sit up here and, and, and juggle chainsaws to get you guys to understand what this looks like. Right? You've you've experienced it. We are intimately acquainted with it. Man's descent into sin. It's a story oftentimes of of our lives, perhaps you're here this morning and you're going, man, this is exactly where I find myself right now. It's a story that we see here over the course of these 66 books that make up the closed canon of God's, of God's word. We observe on countless occasions man's descent, woman's descent into sin, only to be countered by God's commitment well, God's commitment to, to what, right? Because that first part is incredibly bleak, right? If we just leave there, if we all pray and go home, <laughs> like we don't really receive any answers, right? There's no, there's no balm on our, on, our, on our labored and heavy hearts. But when we step back and we, and we realize that all of this is countered by God's commitment to his plan to rescue, we are left celebrating. We're left leaning in this morning and going, all right, I'm aware of my own condition. But then again, how from Genesis 21 does God speak towards this? How does the gospel inform the way that we, that we know God, the way we see God, the way that we know ourselves and see ourselves and the way that we, that we go out of this place, the way we go out of this place this morning? Here's an idea that I want to give you that we are going to work through two observations to establish. So I'm going to give you a big idea, uh, and then I'm going to give you two observations that we're going to work through from Genesis chapter 21 this morning. Now, here's the way that this does not work, okay? I'm not about to give you a main idea, and then I'm going to break that main idea into two smaller sections, so at the end we naturally arrive at this, you know, at this complete, like, idea, right? Here's the way that it works. I'm going to give you this idea, this big idea, this main idea that that I feel like our text drives us to uh, this morning. Um, And then I'm going to give you two observations that if we, if we follow through and we lean in and the Lord is, is gracious and faithful to open our eyes and hearts, we'll walk away and we'll go, yeah, I see that, which now leads me to embrace this big idea. Does that make sense? Let me give you the big idea and we'll, we'll see as we work our way our way through. Here it is. God's God sovereignly works. God sovereignly works. So we're talking about how God works here. We're saying some things about how God works from Genesis chapter 21. God is saying some things about how he works from Genesis 21. If you're here this morning, you're going, how does God work? Or how, how, does all this, how does all this happen? Or how is it orchestrated? How is it decided? Genesis 21 speaks towards this. He works sovereignly. God sovereignly works. To accomplish that which is humanly impossible. God sovereignly works to accomplish that which is humanly impossible. And so prepare yourself. We are going to corporately this morning be reminded of our own limitation. Right? So don't, don't, don't be too let down when we get there. I'm preparing you now. Human limitation and God's sovereign work to bring about, bring about his, his will working to accomplish that which is humanly possible, magnifying his goodness and grace and our rightful humility and worship. Let me give you all that at one time because I feel like I broke it up and I I preached it before we even got to it. So let's, let's step back. Here it is. God sovereignly works to accomplish that which is humanly impossible, magnifying his goodness and grace and our Rightful posture of humility and worship. Our rightful posture of humility and worship. As we step back into Genesis chapter 21, we see the scene narrow. We see the scene narrow in upon the will and work of the Lord and his faithfulness to his promises. For those of us who have been in the book of Genesis for some time, uh, then, then you know that we have been, we've been tracing, 
right? This, this promise that we'll actually go back and we'll look at this morning, the amount of time that has passed and the number of times that we have heard this particular promise. This morning, we see it, it fulfilled. Right, we see it's, it's realization. What an incredible time to come into the new year. What a, what an, a beautiful natural break in this book that allows us to, to begin anew as we, come into, as we come into 2019 and our study through the book of Genesis. Two observations that we're going to make as we work through these seven verses. Number one, learning through the impossible. Or what does it look like to, to learn through the impossible? What does God desire to do in us? Right? How does God desire to, to shape us as we are, are, are confronted with these impossible situations and circumstances? What is God desiring to do? How is he, how is he working? How is he, how is he leading us and teaching us through the things that we are altogether familiar with? That's the number one. Number two is worship in response to the improbable. Right, so we're talking about the impossible and we're talking about the improbable, that which seems humanly amiss, right? not to be grasped, not to be realized, fulfilled, and then how are we to then respond? How do God's people respond to the improbable, the Lord working and fulfilling, and fulfilling his promise? Let's lean in and let's embrace number one. We've got to begin somewhere. Number one is always a great place to begin. Learning through the impossible. Look with me at verse one. Open up to Genesis 21. Stay in Genesis 21 as we, uh, as we, as we look to and seek to glean what the Lord would have for us here. Genesis 21 verse one. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. If we divide the book of Genesis up into a series of, of sections, and depending on how you look at the book and you understand the structure of the book, you can, you can really do this a number of, of ways. You can break it into like two major sections, which is like God's work in the life of this family, and then like this family's like work in the world, right? Or you can look at it in like more, uh, more numerous sections. You can break it up into like, into like five sections, if we break this book up into, into like five sections, we find ourselves this morning in section two or three. And a story that revolves around Abraham's family and their relationship with God. We see in this story great and familiar dysfunction. Now here's going to be my encouragement to you as we work through this passage today. Like personalize it. Okay, I want, you, I want you to consider how you are acquainted with dysfunction. Right? How you are, are familiar with a certain degree of, of chaos, given our, our nature and given the world in which we live in. We observe here a family who displays again and again and again elements of the corrupting nature of sin in the world. What does that look like? Well, over the past few chapters, we have observed from this family alone, pride. Right, this, this feeling as though, which we'll talk about a little bit more in just a, a few minutes, that they might dictate and determine how their lives are to go. Right? That they might devise for themselves a, a plan, and that through this plan, they might circumvent God's plan, that it might be accomplished in their time as opposed to God's time. We've observed doubt, right? questioning as to whether or not the Lord is, is able to preserve this people, which leads to deception, right? On multiple occasions, we have seen Abraham present his relationship with his wife as something that it is not in order to preserve his own life, as though the Lord did not have the life of Abraham right there in the palm of his very hand. We've observed fear, and this is just to name a few. 
addition, we have observed a limitation, a limitation that results in great heartache for this family. Well, what is that? Well, it's the inability of Abraham and Sarah to have children. This is a a big piece of this story. But but it's not limited to this story. You see, this, this is a big piece of the story. I'm talking here about about what we find over over the course of these few chapters, right? Narrowing down the long life of these two individuals in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, but not only in the book of Genesis, right? But we're talking about like from beginning to end. It is this it is this story of of children and and conception and calling and adoption. The story of God's work in and through Abraham and his family, as well as the desires of God from the foundation of the world. We're stepping back in time a moment. In fact, we're stepping back as far as we can. This is literally as far back as we can go. God's desire to, to, to multiply the human race and to redeem it unto himself through Christ Jesus. Spiritual offspring reconciled in fellowship with the Father. The call of the Lord is clear. Let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. In Genesis 1, verse 28, we read of the Lord's instruction to the first man and the first woman within the confines of marriage, as he defines it, to increase. Having been created in the image of God, God then gives this instruction to his people to be about creating more image bearers of himself. In Genesis 12, verse 2, we see for the first time this promise from God that from this childless family, a nation would be born. In Genesis 15, God leverages the night sky to illustrate the offspring that would come through Abraham's family. A great multitude, as numerous as the stars above Abraham's head. We're not done there, though, right? In Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I will give you a son by Sarah. I will bless her and She will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham's response was what? For those of us who have been here. Laughter. I think that that is important as we come into chapter 21 this morning. In Genesis 18, God again appears to Abraham saying, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah, listening in from a distance, overhears the conversation. And how does she respond? Laughter, right? In the same way that we observe Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. Now, I want us to connect with what's going on here for just a moment. Because there's some some powerful things at work. In fact, I want us to personalize it. I want us to consider the way that we have experienced similar Circumstance and, and, and heartache, frustration, fear in our own lives. Have you, have you ever become so acquainted with disappointment that you have to laugh to keep from crying? I, I feel like that I've probably been there, and I would say that probably many of you, if you sat here and you thought about it long enough and hard enough, you would say I had been there as well. I feel like this is where Abraham and Sarah are as we read their response in Genesis 17 and 18. Right there, there is a sense in which they are they're laughing because what the Lord is, is promising seems impossible. Right? It would be as though I took us all outside and I pointed up toward the sky and I said, I'm going to change the color of the sky. Tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and it's going to be like fuchsia. Like all day long, just fuchsia. No more blue, we're going to do something different today. Right, you'd be like, okay, like that's crazy. I'm not coming back, <laughs> right? 
There's a sense in which they're, they're presented with this impossible task, and as a result, there is laughter. But, but given, given the, the promise, the nature of the promise, and the desires of these two present, there's no doubt that this is a, that this is a, a hard and difficult subject. Right? This is a hard and, and difficult reality for this family. We observe here a, a family feeling the effects of barrenness. Right, a family feeling the effects of their inability to produce offspring. An inability to, if we go back to Genesis chapter 2, exercise obedience to the very call of the Lord. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. Right, that's, how, that's how broken our world is. That's right, it's how, it's how broken we are. Right? We, we get a picture of it, we get a glimpse of it through, through the, the, the physical barrenness of this particular family, right? the inability to, to produce offspring. Right? But when we step out of the physical realm and we begin to consider how this manifests itself in a, in a physical realm, right? we, we recognize our own inability, right? our inability to produce, to produce life. Right? We don't make ourselves alive. Right? That's the hope of the gospel. We see here a, a family feeling the effects of, of this prevention, this obstacle. A prevention put in place from Sarah's perspective by the Lord. Seen in Genesis chapter 16, verse 2. Listen to what Sarah says in Genesis chapter 16. Where does this come from? This again is going to assist in our understanding what the Lord is doing through this. Okay, So hang with me. What is the Lord doing? What is he teaching through this impossible circumstance? We've got to understand how all of this is brought about. We live in a fallen world and, and then as a result there is this, this certain inability right, to, to live in obedience. To follow the instruction. But listen to what Sarah says about this, uh, this, this prevention that she and her husband are experiencing. She says to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. So, so Sarah feels the prevention and she doesn't step back and go, Okay, this is a byproduct of a fallen existence. It is, but, but not in the same way that, that, that we might initially imagine. We see that there is a prevention in place intended to expose something. David McLemore assists in drawing this out for us as he writes, The barrenness of Sarah is an effective metaphor. For what, we all ask? Well, for, for hopelessness. This text tells us there is no foreseeable future and there is no human power to invent a future. Think about it. Abraham and Sarah have, have, have felt this. We have observed this already. As they said, no, it is our desire to have an offspring. And we have heard the promise of the Lord, but the situation seems impossible. The, the circumstances seem improbable. And so we will devise our own plan to bring about the birth of an heir. And what happens? Well, we're going to talk more about that next week. We actually see it as we continue through chapter 21. You have, you have Hagar. Right? Abraham's relationship with her and, and subsequent offspring, right? There's, this, there's been this, this desire in light of the hopelessness, in light of the, the, the hopelessness of the foreseeable future to make an own way, to make their own way. Producing an heir in accordance with their own wisdom, resulting in, get this, increased chaos, as it always does. Right? Are we familiar with this? When we act out of our, our own wisdom and our own desires, right? As opposed to as opposed to, to, to humbly and, and prayerfully approaching the word of the Lord and asking him to, to, to teach us, right? To give us his wisdom and to lead us and to guide us and direct us. What happens? Chaos. <laughs> right? I and I'm laughing. It's one of those laugh to keep from crying moments, maybe, right? Because, because you felt it and I felt it. Chaos results from a, a human desire to circumvent God's plan. As well as, in this particular instance, 
a natural relational disruption. We see that there's this, there's this broken relationship that exists now. Again, we're going to talk more about it next week. But we've already observed it from Sarah and Hagar and Sarah's feelings in light of Hagar bearing a son, right? With Abraham, that's an issue. A lot of mess, right? There's a lot of mess. It's a very messy situation. We observe promise after promise. Time continues to pass by, and an otherwise desperate set of circumstances now become increasingly less hopeful. This is, and would, remain a pattern. God is, is teaching people. Right? God, is, God is teaching people how he works. He's teaching people about purpose in and through the impossible. Purpose in despair. Purpose in hopelessness. This might be a new concept for many of us. To actually consider that there is a purpose, that God works. Not just in spite of, but through difficulty. Right, that there is something that he is, is seeking to accomplish. The biblical narrative shapes the way that you and I understand the will of God working. So let's take a minute and let's talk about what that means. It means that, that we don't um, survey the landscape of our lives and, and the landscape of our world and then being left into our own devices seek to formulate some type of explanation as to why things are happening. That's not the way that we live. That may be the way that you live, but I would venture to guess that's not going well for you. Okay? And and so what ought we do? Well, we, we step back and we consider in light of the word of the Lord, how does he work to accomplish his plan and purpose? Right? How, does he, how does he change our plan? How does he change purpose? How does he redeem situations and circumstances to bring about good, good for you and I and good for the communities that we live in? Glory to his name. Are you guys tracking with me here? Like, are we together so far? The biblical narrative shapes the way that we understand the will of God working itself out through, through hardship. And, and hopelessness as humanity is brought to the end of itself. Hopelessness that places us in a, in a perfect position to observe the full tapestry of God's divine work. Macklemore continues and he says this. He says, the human race and human history hit a dead end. And then God speaks, and there is hope again. God closes the womb of Sarah in order to what? In order to display his power. In order to bring life out of death. It's like Genesis 21 serves as a, a, a fire tower. Are you familiar with fire towers? We live in Carrollton. We don't exactly have a ton of fire towers in Carrollton, but, but if you um, live in a, in a more mountainous region or a wooded area or if you're from the West Coast, perhaps you're a little bit more familiar. I know one of my, one of my favorite authors, Jack Kerouac, wrote a book um, years and years ago entitled The Dharma Bums, and in there he talks a lot about uh, time that he spent living in a fire tower. Fire towers are these, are these, these structures that are constructed on the tops of, of mountains and heavily wooded areas so that if there is a fire in the distance, right, you can look out and you can observe the fullness of the landscape and you can call it in, right? You can call down and say, hey, there's a fire over there. Like, go put it out. Somebody go put out the fire. Something needs to be done. Genesis 21 serves as a bit of a fire tower for us. We're able to to stand upon it and we see the fulfillment of the promise of God to bring about the birth of Isaac. We look out across the the landscape, all that we know that is coming in light of our familiarity with the the New Testament, right? And even even the, 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 the rest of the Old Testament, there's a lot here. 
saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of where we're, we're going. Now, this serves to, to send smoke up. It paints a picture for us of what God is accomplishing on an infinitely greater scale. We see here the story of the birth of a child. And it's important. In fact, it's, it's foundational. Right, but the story doesn't end after Genesis 21. It continues on. Why? Because Genesis 21 is meant to point us to, towards something greater. To and towards someone greater. The Bible is a story about, about births. Here we see one. Right, but we, we always look to it and we, and we read it in light of what we know is coming. The birth of a, of a rescuer. Right, Another one. At the cross, Jesus embraces death so that by faith we might be brought back to life, so that we might be brought back to God. Consider what we have said from Genesis 21. In Genesis 21, we observe God's ability to bring life out of death. Through the cross of Christ, we observe God's ability to bring life out of death. And it's all born through, through difficulty and, and hardship, right? Like a certain degree of, of ugliness. The story has not been pretty up until this point. Consider all the things that we've said about the sin of Abraham and Sarah. It's been difficult, right? As we observe uh, the ministry, the earthly ministry of Jesus, we, we see similar difficult seasons that teach us about God's faithfulness and his ability to produce life. From impossible circumstances, right? Think about I think about Jesus and and uh, and and Lazarus, who was permitted to die in order that the Lord might display His power in bringing life from that which was dead. You think about the cross of Christ. This this ugly and beautiful scene that displays for us God's ability to to rescue through the death of of one who would be laid in the ground and risen back to life, producing life from death in the same way that the desperation of Sarah is drawn out. And the inability of this family is emphasized. Here it is. So too is ours. Our inability to, to manifest and to will apart from a supernatural work of God. A true and authentic obedience to Him and His instruction for His world. Through our efforts apart from Christ, we serve only to produce greater chaos. Through our efforts Apart from Christ, we serve to produce only greater chaos. Our inability is only magnified. Hopelessness sets in and then God speaks. Right? The gospel penetrates our hearts and our king solidifies himself as the preeminent one in our lives. The only one, the only one capable of working in the impossible circumstances of life. Through the lives of these people, God teaches us to look to and to trust Him. Did you get that? Right? Through the lives of these people, through this scene, God teaches us, you and I. He teaches those who are, who are reading this book for the first time to look to. And to trust in Him. Why? Well, because we are going to need it. Okay, we're gonna, we are going to, we are going to need it. He teaches us about His sovereign will and time, and how we ought to trust the faithfulness of God, a God who had given a Son, and who was given a land. We see that. That God is faithful to his word. That God is faithful to his word to save. Removing shame. Think about the shame in this family. 
Think about it. No, like, really. Like, I'm not just like, ah, oh, think about it. Like, no, really think about it. And how, how through this scene, are there still consequences? Absolutely. We'll see that next week. But there's this, this, this sense in which, which hopelessness is dispelled. Right? And, and, and shame is, is erased. No matter how improbable, no matter what the cost, God is faithful. Right? God is faithful to his word, which leads us to our, our second observation. Okay, so, so number one was what? Learning through the impossible. What are we to learn through the impossible? Well, we learn how weak we are. We learn how needy we are. Right? We learn how, how reliant we are on, on him. Right? Or if we wouldn't identify him as him on, on someone. I'm here to tell you that that someone is Jesus. Okay? We learn how, how faithful he is, how powerful he is. And how he moves and works. Which, I don't know what you're dealing with this morning. Undoubtedly something. Because you've been living life. You haven't been doing nothing. So you've got, you've got life circumstances. I don't know what those look like. But, but God rules. I know that. And I know that that speaks towards any and every situation and circumstance that we, that we experience and encounter. So that's number one. <laughs> How are we feeling? Number two is much shorter. Everybody's like, okay, Ryan's. They close at midnight. Maybe we can make it there. Um, <laughs> we're going to be okay. Worship in response to the improbable. These are the truths. Now, how do we respond? Well, we, we observe within this passage an act of worship. Look with me at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son. The son is here, who was born to him, who Sarah had born to him, Isaac. And Abraham, verse 4, circumcised his son Isaac. When he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. I want us to think about what we saw in chapter 17 and 18. Laughter, but from a totally different posture, right? From a totally different position. Now there's this, this proclamation. The Lord has made laughter for me. We wonder, does, does Sarah remember? Right? Like, she's only, like, a year removed. Like, that was the promise, that this time next year I'll revisit or do a child, right? Everyone who hears will, will laugh over me, verse 7. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet, I have borne him a son. In his old age. In verse 4, we see a clear display of obedience. Right? Look there with me. It's right there. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him. This is verse 3. Whom Sarah had born him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. We see this clear display of obedience or worship. Or do you consider that? Do we, do we consider our obedience as acts of, of worship? We ought to. What's the first thing that we've observed Abraham do on countless occasions over the course of this narrative? Build an altar and worship, right? Acts of obedience to display a posture of worship. Given that Abraham just received his son that he had longed for, that had been promised, do we not think that this would be a, a, a joyful act this is a worshipful act that we're observing here from Abraham to the, to the instruction of God from Genesis 17. Obedience or, or worship driven by what? What is Abraham's worship driven by? Well, it's driven by this realization that the Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful and as a result, worship. This changes the way that we come into this time together, doesn't it? This changes the way that we live with our families at home, doesn't it? This changes the way that we worship, doesn't it? I just don't feel like it. I'm just not feeling it. What? <clears throat> the Lord is faithful. Like we are reminded before us this morning of the faithfulness of the Lord. Let's look to the faithfulness of the Lord to inform our posture of worship. 
Let's look to the faithfulness of the Lord to, to drive us into a heart of worship. As he has given us a heart of worship. We see worship here, man. We see obedience here, driven by God's faithfulness and a fuller understanding of His love. We are able to joyfully and willingly submit to the call of God because we have been made to grasp the love of God. God is loving. I knew that, but now I am experiencing that in an altogether different reality. Why? Well, because I've been given a son. We see this love that transcends understanding and comprehension. Love that transcends experience while at the same time directly connecting itself. In Genesis 21, we see a family that is familiar with the concept of conception. While together they have yet to experience it. In chapter 17, the Lord, having visited Abraham and Sarah, makes a promise for the sake of his name and for the joy of his people. He promises that they will have a son. The love and faithfulness of the Lord is shared and real, and yet it's comp... It's comp- hold on. <laughs> Slow down a minute. It's comprehension, to a certain degree, eludes them. Right? They, they hear it, they, they get it, but they haven't experienced it. They can't imagine something so great. We can try. Right? We can try to imagine. But there's this experience, right, that gives, that gives birth to a fuller understanding and a fuller comprehension. Right? Are we familiar with this? I can tell you something's going to happen. You go, man, that sounds great. And then it happens, and we go, man, that was great. I thought it was great, but I, I couldn't understand how great it was. Having children, right? That's great. Like, hey, children are gifts from the Lord. I knew that. But you know what? Like, that knowledge takes on added dimension when you have a child. Right? Like you, you hear of the, of the faithfulness of the Lord. You hear of the friendship of Christ that we are able to experience as we, as we lay our lives down, as we turn from sin and look to Him. And I can tell you that that's incredible. And it is. But until you know that, right, there, there's a certain degree of comprehension that escapes. It eludes. Here in Genesis 21, the same love that existed between God and this family in in Genesis chapter 12. The same love that existed in Genesis chapter 17. All passages that we have read from this morning are understood to a deeper degree. Why? Well, because their, their fulfillment is here. Right? And here's what we're saying, right? Is that the, the fulfillment is here. Right, that Christ has, has come, that this birth points us towards a, a greater birth. Let us not forget what God is accomplishing here. This story does not end with this family. It only begins with this family. Right, God is birthing a nation, and from this nation shall come one son who would save sinners from all of the brokenness that we spent 35 minutes in the beginning of our time together talking about. This is, just, this is just the beginning. Isaac receives his name. Isaac receives his name from the Lord. And his name, many commentators uh, suggest, was actually a, a, a shortened form of what we understand in the English to be this. May God laugh. It means, it means laughter. Right in the in the middle of this story of heartache and brokenness, with with seasons of, of laughter, we find here that, that God laughs. Right? That, 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 that God laughs. We see we've seen the chaos and the destruction resulting from Abraham and Sarah's seeking to to circumvent the plan of God, to superimpose their plan on His plan, what did that bring about? Not good things. Here, we observe the Lord superimposing His laughter upon Abraham and upon upon Sarah, reminding them that His word would be the last word. 
Laughter has changed. You read chapter 17, you read chapter 18, it's a nervous laughter. Ha <laughs> ha. Right? We come to 21 and we see, we see conversation around a, a, a joyful laughter. And we, see, we, see new, we see new laughter. Abraham and Sarah know the love of God and they are coming to know the love of God. Through their experiences, they are growing to know what is inexhaustible. We've known desperate, we've known hopelessness, but now we know hope. Now we experience hope. We have tangible hope. To which perhaps, as you're gathered here this morning, you say, well, that's that's great. Now how do I know tangible hope? How do I hold and, and feel hope? Let me give you just a few, a few points of reminder. Okay, number one, God fills his people with the tangible presence of his spirit. And in him we know we know hope. Or we have assurance of hope. Number two, God calls us into a community of his people who are able to love us and encourage us and gospel us in real, tangible ways. So how do you know hope? Well, first, you you, you step back and you you consider the, the indwelling of the Spirit. How he produces within us hope in, in hopeless situations and, and circumstances, tangibly, right? We, we feel as we are indwelled. In addition, we have, we have a, a people who surround us, God's people, tangible. Number three, Christ gives us the, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we enjoy every week. We come and we take of the bread and, and the cup, right? We, we pick them up, right? It's, we're active in it, like our senses are engaged as we are Considering and reflecting on the, the tangible love of God. In what way? Well, we, we take of the bread and we remember, as we've been instructed to, the broken body of Christ. Right? We, we, we dip it into, into uh, the cup. We're reminded tangibly. We see it. Our senses are engaged with the spilt blood of Christ. And then we eat, we taste, right? Not in some, you know, some like way in which we're, you know, saying this is the actual body and the actual blood. It's not as though we're actually tasting, but we're experiencing. And we're promised, God promises in his word that he is returning for his church. That Christ returns and he judges and he reconciles and he remakes, he gathers us all together. We enjoy a meal, right? Tangibly, we're looking forward to this moment. We're reminded of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sin and the hope of the resurrection. Evidence. Evidence of God's power to work. God teaches us here that that nothing is hopeless and that no trauma is beyond God's restoration. Do you believe that? Do you you really believe that this morning? I want to give you a few things to consider as we prepare to um, to come to the table. Two things. You can make note of these if you would like. This is what, let's be considering these things as we come to the table. We come actively to the table. We don't come passively to the table. But this isn't just some, some act that we tack on the end of the service. It begins now, okay? I want you to, I want you to take a moment. Close your eyes. And I want you to to meditate for just a moment on your own inability. And I want you to want you to think about your your own inability to to bring life from brokenness and death. Your inability to produce it, to make it. This is an easy an easy uh, this is an easy practice for some of us. Do you have it? Are you you thinking about it? This is where Abraham and Sarah found themselves. And they found themselves there for years. 
And so if you're sitting here, you're going, yeah, I, this is a, an easy practice for me because I've been feeling this for years. Know that you're not alone. And know that you're not left to yourself. Now I want you to take a moment and I want you to consider the Lord's work through that which seemed impossible. From Genesis 21 and from the cross. Right? In, in all the ways that we cannot, God can and God will. Now I want you to take a moment, I want you to, I want you to pray. I want you to I want you to pray that God would give you a deeper understanding of his faithfulness. I want you to pray that, that your eyes might be open to the to the glory of Christ and the Father's work to call, to build, and to and to prosper, to preserve, and to deliver. That's what the first audience of this book is is being encouraged in and towards as they would read this. So that through, from our perspective, knowing the full story, his death and resurrection, hopeless sinners would be filled with an indescribable hope. Open your eyes. What can we say about this hope as we come to the table? Well, it's a, it's a hope that totally transforms the way that we see possibility and potential for redemption and other broken people and broken situations, relationships, attitudes, right? addiction, perceptions, dreams, and desires. God is faithful and the gospel redeems. And so as we come to the table this morning, remembering the death and resurrection of our King and anticipating this future meal that we are reminded of as we tangibly take of the bread and dip into the cup, future fellowship with him and one another. Let's be considerate of these realities and their implication for life and for our joy.